From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Starling pulls Irish bank application, Story becomes Mexico's latest fintech unicorn, and Eat the Rich pop schools are selling fast. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word about some of the things we're cooking up here at 11FS. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome to episode 648 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11th colleague, Amy Gavin, lead industry strategist. How are you doing, Amy? Very well, thank you, Kate. Excited to be here in the studio with three other people, IRL. Um, yes, great to be here. Awesome. And as always, as Amy's alluded to, we're joined in person by some very special guests. So making an exceptionally welcome to return to Fintech Insider, we have Sarah Kashansky, independent fintech strategy consultant. Welcome back to the show, Sarah, with wine. Very much appreciated. (laughs) Can you give us some insight into the life of an independent fintech strategy consultant? Well, thank you very much for having me back. I mean, it it does feel... Very strange to be back in this room with lots of people I used to work with and the studio. It's brilliant to be back, you know, recording these things in person. Um, Basically, I'm doing what I've always done, but kind of on my own terms. So I am continuing to do the fintech strategy work I've always loved and working with clients, helping them understand kind of where the opportunities are for them in fintech. Um, And then I'm sort of doing, you know, some of that market research and thought leadership, which I've always done. I'm writing for Sifted. I'm doing, uh, you know, long form reports as well for a couple of clients. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm my own boss, basically. That's the only thing that's changed. And it's brilliant. Sarah, as her own boss, is both like a wonderful and a terrifying prospect all at the same time. But yeah, it's great to great to have you back. <laughs> and it's also a return to Fintech Insider for Doug McKenzie, Chief Content Officer at Fintech Finance. So welcome back to the show, Doug. Can you give our listeners a little introduction to you and to Fintech Finance? Yeah, so I head up the content over at uh, FF News and Fintech Finance and uh, currently running the, uh, the Paytech show where we travel the world, shoot banks um, and really try and get some human stories out of payments and, and actual, you know, the end user at the end of the chain um, and edit FF News too. Awesome. Have you got to travel anywhere cool recently? Or? Yeah, we just did a episode all about M-Pesa. And so we got to go to Nairobi and uh, South Africa and really see how it's actually impacting people's lives, being able to get them on the bus, even in the countryside, just with mobile payments. It's been fascinating. Awesome. Well, looking forward to getting your perspective on the news. So, and with that, let's get into the news. So, first up, we took this from Sky News, but it's been in lots of places. So, Starling pulls Irish bank application as international focus shifts. So, Starling Bank told its 2,000 employees that it had ended a four-year process aimed at launching a retail bank in Ireland. In a memo to staff seen by Sky News, Starling founder and chief executive Anne Bowden said the company had opted to pursue other projects that would deliver a superior return. Bowden wrote... 
Ultimately, we felt that an Irish subsidiary would not deliver the added value we are seeking. Starling announced its intention to secure an Irish banking licence in 2018, although the process was temporarily paused during the pandemic. People close to Starling said it was more likely to pursue the application of a European bank to obtain a licence and apply for a licence in each new market, which can often be a protracted process. Um, Sarah, you tweeted, this is actually a sensible strategy. Um, why is this a sensible <coughs> strategy? <laughs> so um, I, uh, I was just, the actually was kind of responding to some of the, um, the, the way that it was phrased in the particular publication that I was looking at. Um, but my point was that if you spent four years doing something and it hasn't happened, then thinking about what you can do instead is probably a good idea. I mean, Monzo also had a bit of a pivot. You sort of think, well, what do we do next? Let, let's adjust our strategy and let's adjust our strategy in line with the circumstances in which we find ourselves. The last four years, Starling really developed its software as a service offering. Really important to note, it's the software as a service, not the banking as a service offering they've looked at previously. Um, that means that they don't need a full banking license, which, as we all know, are hard to get and even harder to maintain. Um, they can go into Europe. They can go and find some of those large banking clients. They won't be competing with those large bank clients because they haven't got a license. They can't be drawn, trying to draw their customers. And they've got you know, a very well-established brand, a proven technology stack, and you only need one or two of those really big clients for this to be a really good revenue earner. So I don't say, and I think some people on Twitter took me the wrong way, I don't <laughs> know that this is going to succeed. There are an awful lot of people in this playing field, some really big names who have already got good reputations. My point was, given where Starling is and given what it's you know, been doing for the past four, few years or four years, um, this makes sense to me, logically. Okay. No, absolutely. I mean, is it is it harsh to describe this as like a waste of time if they wasted four years or? <laughs> well, it's really interesting. Um, the part of the problem is the pandemic, right? So, so you don't, we don't know, you never know with these things because the regulators are never going to come out and say, this is why it's taken so long, unless you're the FCA and you honestly say it's because we haven't got enough people to process the applications. Sorry, we can't do anything about that until you give us more money. Um, the Irish haven't said that. Um, I don't, I don't know that it was a waste of time in the sense of they may consider it to be that, but I think when they started the journey, they didn't consider it to be a waste of time. And as I said, I think that the change that's happened is because circumstances around them have changed. The pandemic paused, probably paused all the applications, and then think we've come out of, well, we haven't come out of the pandemic. <laughs> the bureaucracy has come out of the pandemic somewhat, um, and they've seen that it's still not moving. So this is the point at which they've made their decision. Would they have made the decision two years earlier or two years ago if we hadn't had the pandemic? Possibly, probably. Yeah. Um, Amy, Sarah's talked about like the competition in the sort of SaaS space. I mean, what about the competition in Ireland itself? You know, are Starling scared of the Irish market? Is there something there? Yeah, I'd imagine Starling's kept a pretty close eye on what competitors are doing there, considering it was planning to launch there. So I think the most interesting one in Ireland is Revolut, and it's had huge success there. In fact, it's reported 1.7 million customers, which considering um, the country has a population of just over 5 million, is pretty impressive. Um, and actually, last month, Revolut started rolling out its BMPL offering in Ireland um, before moving into other European countries. So it's, it clearly uses it maybe as a bit of a testing ground um, for some of its future strategies. So I think Revolut for Ireland is um, a huge competitor that potentially Starling could have been worried by. Um, 
N26 actually also operates in Ireland and it has about 200,000 customers, but offers lending in other markets, doesn't offer it in, in Ireland. So how committed N26 is to sort of building itself up in Ireland is a question. Um, but they would be the main two, I think, that Starling would have seen as its competition there. Mm. Doug, what was your take on this? Yeah, um, I mean, purely on a kind of, if you look at Bowden personally, I think she spent a lot of time in Ireland um, working at the Bank of Ireland. And so maybe there's a, a kind of humbling there. But also, more importantly, to both your points, I think the market is saturated enough with, with the fintech um, banks that are out there, you know, Revolut is, as you said, so prevalent out there that if you're going to go in, you'd they'd have had to have gone in with full gusto. And I think it just wasn't worth that, especially after Brexit. Then, as you said, the pandemic. Um, so I think, yeah, it's maybe was a bit of scared of the competition, but a realistic kind of redrawing of the lines of where they want to operate and where they want to thrive and succeed. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, there are very, very strong fintech players in Ireland, but we have also seen some of the incumbents in Ireland drawing back. So, you know, Ulster Bank, now it was shutting down their operations last year. Um, I think KBC Ireland have sort of gone into talks to sell off their loan books. So we've seen some of the incumbents struggling as well. So, you know, it feels like maybe there could be space for fintechs yeah. potentially. Um, Actually, so- sorry, speaking to that point, I, I read that about 30% of the customers who are part of KBC and Ulster Bank um, are actually looking at moving to a digital-only bank. So there is a huge vacuum of customers that are about to become very apparent. Um, so to be honest, it, it does sound like a good time to jump in, but it's obviously something they know that, that we don't. Yeah, um, Sarah, I think we're going to talk about investors and investment quite a lot on this show, but you know, what, what's your take on <laughs> what do you think investors will think about Starling's decision? I mean, did you see Starling's annual report today? It came out today. I don't think their investors are worried by this decision. Starling reported an annual profit this year. Its um, deposit base is up 55% to £9 billion. Lending is up 45% to £3.3 billion. And the revenue has increased 93% year over year. I do not think Starling's investors are particularly worried at this minute in time. Um, there is a question of what Starling will do next, you know, other than the, the software as a service piece and what what that software as a service offering will actually look like because at the moment if you look at um, Starling Engine which is their brand for that online it's quite broad it looks like a lot of the other kind of bank modular banking software propositions out there um, I think what's going to be really interesting talking about loans and lending and the pullback of the big banks is what Starling does with its mortgage proposition they bought fl- fleet mortgage and the June of last year, um, and they, you know, in the results that came out today, that they are now, now they have more than £2 billion worth of mortgages on their books, Starling does, um, off the back of that, of which they've added £600 million just in the last six months. So if they can, and, and the reason I'm talking about this is because mortgages are so ripe for disruption, it drives me around <laughs> the bend. Yes, there are some brilliant digital brokers, but if Starling can put an end-to-end Mortgage, digital mortgage proposition into a software as a service wrapper and push it out to other banks. That for me would be brilliant. Yeah, sorry. No, no. I just I just went off on one there because I was reading that this morning and I was reading their report this morning and going, this is all these pieces need to come together. No, I think we were chatting about mortgages on the show last week as well. Like it feels like the space that needs like shaking up and shaking up hard. Like, yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, the mortgage rates in Ireland are the second highest in uh, Europe. So there's so much money to be made if they were to go that route. Cool. Watch. Are you, are you going to be? 
venturing yourself? Yeah. Can we have a share? Is yeah. what I want to know. Is that now I've put this idea together, <laughs> and if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, it's slightly awkward. We broadcast that on a podcast. It's yeah. not going to be like particularly secret anymore. So, I mean, one of the things that got talked about. I said at the beginning we weren't going to talk about Brexit, but maybe we are. Um, it, there was an expectation that there was going to be this massive rush on banking licences in Ireland. You know, those e-money licences in Ireland after Brexit. Um, Doug, have we have we seen that? Have we seen kind of this this uptake of of those banking licences in Ireland? Is how has that performed? I I don't know if we have. Um, as someone that you know worked in fintech and was expecting um, when I was going to go into various different fintechs around the world, I was expecting a massive uptake in going over to Dublin and uh, you know seeing the scene there. But I haven't actually seen that. And then when you hear about KBC and Ulster withdrawing. Um, I don't know, it just seems like a really unusual paradigm where there's obviously a huge amount of opportunity, but I, I haven't seen it personally. I thought it was interesting. I think the um, the Irish Central Bank have announced like their biggest ever profits, I think, last <laughs> year because they've gone on sort of like an unprecedented level of, you know, they've been on the rampage <clears throat> in terms of their fines. So I suppose I'm interested to think about you know, whether that has influenced the the space at all, that they're becoming a bit more on it as a regulator. Well, I, um, well, I think to um, Douglas's point, it's um, quite expensive, actually, as a place to live. So if you're thinking about taking an operation there, you're then thinking about employing people there. You've got to pay them quite a lot of money in order to, for them to maintain the lifestyles. And now I know London isn't cheap either, but it's possible that if you looked at Dublin and you looked at Amsterdam, Amsterdam, okay, is again, it's not the cheapest city in the world, but it is, I would say, day to day cheaper than Dublin to live in. Um, and you don't have problems with language in Amsterdam. I know it's you know not a natively English-speaking country, but if you've ever been to Amsterdam, it's, they speak English better than I do, most people. So I do wonder if kind of the cost of living, even pre the current crisis we're seeing kind of globally, affected businesses' decisions to move there. Absolutely. Um, Amy, I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, will Starling go public? What's, what's your hunch? Um, I don't know whether that would be imminent i think it seems like starling is very measured in its strategy very sort of it's not reactive um just the way that it approaches things very carefully i think we would be waiting a little while before we we might see that happen with starling okay Cool. Well, we'll have to move on. Sadly, I think we could talk about Ireland and starting all day, but we've got plenty more to cover. So our next story comes from the Fintech Times, and that is that Story has become Mexico's latest fintech unicorn following massive funding round. So Story has closed its most recent financing round for $150 million, bringing the company's total value to $1.2 billion. Story offers credit cards to Mexico's underbanked population and now joins a select group of Mexico-based companies that have achieved unicorn status. This latest series, C2 round comes nine months after raising one of the largest Series C rounds in Latin America and includes a $50 million equity investment from BAI Capital, GIC and GGV Capital. Lots of acronyms there. Uh, (laughs) And Story offers the possibility of obtaining a credit card and building credit history without complicated paperwork, without a credit history and without an annuity. And they currently have more than 1.4 million active clients in Mexico. Um, to find out more about Mexican fintech, we reached out to Katie Janos Small, co-founder and editor of Latin American news site Yopana, to ask why should we be paying attention to Mexican fintech? Why should we be paying attention to Mexico's fintech scene? 
Mexico, I mean, simply by the size of its economy, is one of the biggest markets in Latin America. Um, and the fact that it's had this very traditional concentrated banking system um, means that there's a big opportunity there to bank lower income Mexicans. Mexico uh, is interesting within Latin America that there's a good amount of regulatory clarity, not quite as much maybe as in Brazil. I would consider Brazil to be the leader when it comes to knowing what's going on with fintech rules. Um, but within in Mexico, there's a pretty good amount of regulatory clarity. They're still ironing out some of the details. But it's given a framework for fintechs uh, that operate there to, to have some certainty in their operations. And then it's, it's growing quickly. So an example of, of how the market is developing is that if you look in, in Mexico over all time, there are four banks that account for three quarters of the credit card customers in Mexico. Here's a really interesting fact. At Upana, we spoke to Nubank's general manager in Mexico recently, right? Nubank, the Brazilian fintech that's recently launched in, in Mexico. Nubank's general manager told us that the company issued more than 200,000 cards per month in the first quarter of this year in Mexico. And then you look at the statistics for the biggest banks in Mexico, they were issuing less than half of that. So I think that shows a little about the opportunity for fintechs and the way that fintechs are able to capture the zeitgeist, as it were, uh, in the Mexican market. Wow, yeah, it's really phenomenal growth, such an exciting market. We're seeing such rapid expansion. And Doug, what was what was your take on the story? Yeah, um, I, I love the fact that Mexico has a regulation just called the FinTech regulation. <laughs> and it kind of just sets the tone that you know where the, the country sees opportunity. Um, there is a huge underbanked population there. And when you look at the disparity between the country next door in the United States, um, I think their credit um, to GDP in America, in the United States, is 216%. And then down in in Mexico, it's 39% of the population um, in the credit to GDP. So ripe for disruption, um, a really exciting place to be in. And I think credit is going to be one of those ways of Financial inclusion, just boosting financial inclusion massively. Um, I think it's going to be very exciting times. Yeah, absolutely. And you, Sarah, you know, we are seeing like this insane scale of growth, particularly compared to some other markets. Like, what is it that's different in LATAM? Like, what's allowing these fintechs to grow in ways that we're maybe not seeing elsewhere? The underbanked population and the, excuse me for saying it, but it's true, the corruption of governments, which has led to the state of the banks over there. Um, I'm not saying they're corrupt now, but the historical corruption of of those particular countries has meant that the banks were basically, you know, um, all charging the same interest rate, which they set amongst themselves, which was, you know, utterly ridiculous, unpayable by most people, which meant anybody who did take credit out got into trouble and most people couldn't afford it in the first place. Um, so, you know, and all of that comes from when I, I was speaking to Newbank years ago and they were telling me why they had had such great success in Brazil and they were, they were literally nobody else will do this and we're the first people to come up and challenge those big banks which have nobody's dared to challenge. Um, and, you know, obviously they went in with, with credit as well. Um, I think there's a couple of really interesting things about Story. I think the credit bill building ideas. So it's quite classic in these markets, but you go in and you offer a very small amount 
And what seems very small to us, I should say, that a micro loan can actually mean a lot to people who don't earn very much and they can do a lot with it. And as you say, uh, you know, expanding credit or offering credit to people means that they can make a huge difference to their lives because they can finally pay for that um, education that they wanted or they can finally buy that bit of equipment that enables them to, you know, speed up their, their process of manufacturing. Once they've done that, they can then earn more, they can make sure they're paying back the, you know, that tiny loan. The more they pay back, the more credit they can take, but they're also learning good financial habits at the same time. Um, and I think these credit building propositions, whilst they have value everywhere, have, have particular value in markets like like this. Um, so I think that's really helping them to grow as well because they're going to people who have never had credit before. They're giving them credit, but in a responsible way that helps them and helps them learn. And if you look at Story's website, um, they've got a whole section. Um, I had to Google Translate it. So, um, but my rough understanding was it's quite quite comprehensive financial education um, because because my Spanish is non-existent, not beyond being able to um, read a menu on holiday. Put it that way. <laughs> um, the one thing I would say that it is interesting though, because new bankers come out and said that they've grown faster in Mexico than they ever expected. So within 18 months, they now have credit cards in the hand of 2.2% of the country's adult population in Mexico. Um, in Brazil, that took they reached 30%, but it took nine years. And so Nubank are saying, we didn't expect that growth here. So I do wonder, whilst I really have a, you know, a lot of respect for Story, they might even be slightly too late to this market. Um, I hope not, because I think competition is good and it's healthy, particularly, you know, among two such interesting brands. Yeah, well, I mean, they've said they 1.4 million customers. And I think they said that was, you know, three times growth this year versus last year. So <coughs> it sounds like they have momentum. As you say, it'd be interesting to see whether they maintain that. And I think it's so exciting that we've reached this stage in even more markets around the world now where we're seeing like not just fintechs take on incumbents, but fintechs challenging each other because that just keeps the pressure on to keep evolving the offering, keep making what the, the solutions are for customers like better. And, and that's such a great force to see all around the world. Um, Amy, what was, what was your reaction to this? Yeah, I, I think the appetite is definitely there in Mexico for fintech and for these sorts of solutions. And that is what makes it so exciting and that the opportunity is there for the likes of Story to really seize that. And um, I think I was reading that actually Mexican consumers use mobile banking apps or online banking services despite the large unbanked population, that those sorts of services are incredibly popular and growing rapidly. So I think that really shows that there is this appetite for digital, appetite for fintech. And um, Sarah touched on it a little bit, but the point around the importance of good financial education in that as much as we appreciate the mission to expand access to credit for underserved populations, it does raise this important question about responsible lending and that if you are, say, offering credit cards to people that uh, haven't had even a proper bank account before, that you are ensuring that you are educating them properly about how to use it, importance of repayments, so that when they are doing that credit building, it's positive rather than damaging a potential credit score. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, I, in a similar way to you, I just think it's it's such an exciting place to be in, even just geographically being sandwiched between Brazil and the United States. You can really incorporate a flavor of both the kind of financial um, culture between the two. Like, for instance, Brazil had buy now, pay later, I think in the 50s. <laughs> um, and to incorporate some of those ideas gently through organizations like Nubank, for instance, or what we're seeing is with Story. Um, I'm just so excited to see where, where it's going to go. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other things that I thought was interesting when I was reading their announcement about the fundraise was you know, the investors talked about the experience of, of the team, the founding team, that they had come from this traditional financial background. And that was obviously something that was attractive in the raise. You know, does what, what does having a traditional financial background offer you, Sarah, like when you're starting a fintech or raising in this environment? This is really interesting because one of the other things I tweeted this week was um, a recent study that basically came out and said that of um, VC investments that failed, a large proportion of them could be, could, that could have been foretold before the investment was made based on due diligence. The problem was that investors weren't doing due diligence. They were basing their investments off the team. Um, so I need to be careful what I say. So I, to be fair, that was a study that somebody else did. I just thought that was fascinating. And I think um, sometimes there is too much emphasis put on, well, this person came from X, Y, Z, and therefore they they must know how this works. And Often these days you see like the PayPal mafia or the Google mafia or I don't know who came up with the, the mafia application, but it seems quite wide, quite widely used. Um, I think sometimes that can be the same for people coming from big banks. You know, there's this sort of expectation that they've done this before and that they've left those larger institutions because they've seen the problems and have an idea of how to fix them. Um, and that can be true. It, it can very well be true that they've sat there, they've gone, this isn't working. They've tried to fix it within that large institution, found themselves banging their head against a wall and gone, right, I'll go and do it on my own. And thank you very much. And because I've worked for Morgan Stanley or MasterCard or HSBC, I have the money to go and do that on my own, which not everybody does. Um, so I think that, that could be an advantage, particularly if they've worked in this market. And from what I was reading, they've worked, members of the startup founding team have worked at Capital One underwriting underserved populations. And that that was you know in these brilliant notes that were prepared for us. Um, I think that would be useful because um, then you'd understand it. But I would hope that the founders have a, a, a genuine lived experience of the people they're serving as well. Because if they're coming from these banking backgrounds and they're trying to serve people who are underserved, there needs to be something to, to connect those dots as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of representing the population you're designing for, one of the other things I think that's interesting about this founding team, I suppose they have that traditional finance background, but one thing that makes it different is you know, they do have a female founder mm. as, as one of their founding um, cohorts. So, um, yeah, Amy, what, what, what benefits do female founders bring to, <laughs> to the system, apart from the obvious, I guess? Maybe we're biased. <laughs> well, um, to, to Sarah's point about understanding the end, end customer, there's the empathy point of, I'm building this for a customer, and potentially female founders can bring that to the industry in sort of a slightly different perspective and a different way. Um, so, yeah, no, I think I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, obviously, great news, but still, I think we did still see that you know, none of the $4.4 billion of funding that went to Latin America in 2020 went to female-only founded startups. So, positive step, but loads more still to be done. I mean, and, and I completely agree with you. I just want to, I'm writing a piece on this at the moment, so I've got a lot of these numbers in my head, forgive me. I just want to say that um, it's bad, but it's not any better in Europe. So, in 2020, 2.7% of VC funding went to women founders in Europe. That was down to 1.7% in 2021. In Europe, we're going backwards. So, <clears throat> more female founders, please, and more people <laughs> need to give those founders money to help them bring their propositions to life. Absolutely. Um, and we've talked a bit about you've underbanked and unbanked here. And if you want to find out more about the differences between banked and underbanked uh, populations, you can check out our most recent Explores video on this topic, which is available on YouTube. We're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. 
So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So this one comes from AltFi. Brothers launch DIY investment platform for ESG investors. Two brothers have launched a DIY investment platform targeting the rise in ESG investing or environmental, social and governance, if you've been hiding under a rock. Named Goodfolio, the startup was founded by Omid and Nima Paxresht, who are CEO and CTOs respectively. In short, Goodfolio is a platform to help DIY investors invest in firms and industries which share their ethical values. The London-based company raised £160,000 in pre-seed funding last year and is now on the hunt for a six-figure sum through crowdfunding and is also planning an institutional investment round in 2023. In the long term, it also wants to target pension providers and investment managers in the B2B space. Everyone wants ethical investing. That's that's the case, right? That's that's true, Amy. Yeah, I think there's a an assumption that it's mostly just younger people that want ethical investments or that it's it's a bit of a fad or that it's not necessarily there for the long term. But I just think there's been so much noise about it and now you are definitely in the minority if as a platform you don't offer any sort of nod towards ESG investing. So I think the issue around it is that I think there's a problem with definitions, there's a problem with transparency, um, and that both applies to banks and fintechs. I mean, some fintechs are certainly guilty of not actually being completely transparent about what exists within their green fund um, that that you can easily invest in via their app. So, yeah, I think um, a lot of people want ethical investing and it is here to stay, for sure. Doug, who do you think is doing it best? Oh, <laughs> um, is anyone? Uh, that's probably too much of an easy answer, but it is, you know, there is such a lack of definition. Um, I think even just saying ESG, some people don't even know what the S and, and G um, mean. And so it's really hard to, to drill down, and especially when greenwashing is so prevalent, um, that ha- having that increased... Um, visibility, that transparency, um, we're starting going to start seeing consumers actually be able to see their carbon footprint because I feel like at the moment it just feels like gas. You don't actually know how much you're using. And I think when we start seeing consumers themselves see their carbon footprint in real terms, in real numbers, then we'll start seeing who is pulling ahead. But it's certainly not the large institutions. Sarah, greenwashing, what's your, what's your perspective? Um, it's prevalent, it's everywhere, but I think partly it's inadvertent because people don't actually know what standards they should be adhering to or they've used a standard, a framework that they've made it themselves, which is in- entirely, um, you know, allowable. Um, it was really interesting looking through um, these guys' website. I was trying, <laughs> trying to work out what the standards they'd applied and I couldn't work it out. So for each fund you look at, there's an amazing dashboard that has got lots of information um, that includes kind of the, the UN sustainability uh, goals, the SDGs, and there's kind of a percentage over 
of the companies in each fund that you kind of subscribe to, um, how much they achieve each of those, you know, goals. Then there's kind of a carbon emission thing for every fund. Then there's a lot, you know, which countries in the world they operate in. And I was just like, oh, this could be greenwashing, but it also leads me on to another point I was going to make, which is even when you're going for something that you think fits with your own belief systems, it's very hard to work out if it actually does. Because even if you're given all the information and it is transparent, I sat there for 20 minutes going, well, I have no idea what any of this means. I mean, one of the funds listed on the website is um, iShares Digitalization ETF. Now, I couldn't find anything about that. Even on their website, it didn't put it into any category. It was just listed as one of the funds they offer. So is digitalization just good for society? I didn't, you know, even even within the, with even within you know Goodfolio's own proposition, I was struggling to sort of make head or tail of it. So, greenwashing is a problem, yes. But even when people are trying to actively not, as an investor, you can still be so bombarded with information that you're like, well, I I still don't know what to do, um, and that is to the point if you actually want to do that. I have a very strong feeling that whilst people talk about ESG a lot, right now people want their money to make returns. And I think we did a project, uh, I did a project um, a while back, which is we went out and spoke to a load of people and said, would you be interested in a specifically environmentally friendly ETF? And they said, yes, only if it gave me, yes, but only if it gave me equal to or greater returns than what I'm already investing in. And I think right now, particularly, that's what people care about. Yeah, I think those trade-offs are essential, right? You can't sort of look at one thing in isolation. Like all of these things have to have to play together. And yeah, funds that don't make you any money aren't, <laughs> even if they you do all the good in the world, I think are, are not going to go. But we've seen some real moves. I think we are starting to see some funds, you know, ESG funds, returning a profit, and we're starting to see some proof of that. So, um, so to the point around greenwashing, you know, we've it's, it's part of the issue that we're just not seeing the regulators do enough. We've heard a lot of talk, but you know, not a lot of... A lot of action. Amy, what's, what do you think? Yeah, I think it proves that the industry can't really rely on um, being able to create consistency and governance within itself and that it needs the regulators to come in and um, to set some clear rules, clear guidance and force that transparency that, that consumers are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously we saw a massive growth in... You know, just investment generally during during the pandemic. Mm. Lots of DIY investors, they've talked about DIY investors. I think when I first read this story, I thought it was a platform for people doing DIY <laughs> in their house, which uh, I had to correct myself on. But yeah, DIY investors have been a massive growth trend in the market. You, do we think that's sustainable, Doug? Yeah, I, I think it's um, a very grassroots movement. That uh, It's been very customer demand driven. But to Sarah's point, is that going to continue during this impending, you know, financial hard times, that will be, I wouldn't be able to to speculate, but you certainly hope so because it, I think it, it plays on that narrative of this is connected to my values. I hope it will continue rather than maybe just cold, hard cash. Whether that, you know, as we, you know, your report, Sarah, that you saw, where is equal to or greater, whether there's going to be any leeway in that. That'll be remain to see. And and can I just add just a point that that sort of corroborates that um, fees on funds like this are higher. So you generally pay a lot more 
for an ESG fund. So the average ETF has a fee of somewhere about 0.25 to 0.3. These fees I looked at start at 0.2, but go up to 0.6578. So you're paying more uh, to, to invest in the fund. When the trades are made within the ETF, you pay a fee. So even though the platform is fee-free, you have to pay a fee to the fund manager to make a trade, and the fees tend to be higher on this kind of product. Um, if you look at Nutmeg, they've got the exact same thing. They tell you that up front. Um, so you're actually... Even if you're making technically a greater return, you're, you're losing a greater share of it to fees. Yeah. So they have said. I mean, one of the things I saw when I was looking at them is they do claim that they've taken like a slightly different fee structure. So they're sort of t- they're talking about charging you know, based on the amount that you invest rather than per transaction. So I think that's interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. No, but the ETF fund, they still have to. They, so the way that the fees will work is that they still don't have. You still don't have a choice about the. Mm. So their fee varies. The Goodfolio's fee varies based on how much you invest. But you will still have to pay for every trade that is made on the back of it to the fund manager. So they don't get to set those fees. Um, so again, that's kind of a, a sliding scale. That a lot of these uh, wealth managers use is this kind of like invest five thousand pounds and don't pay any management fees. Invest ten thousand pounds and pay point seven five or whatever it is. Um, so it's just something that I've been looking at a lot lately and, it, and they are very clear about it. I should say Goodfolio is very honest about it. If you go and look at the funds on their website, they will tell you the, the fees per trade on there. And what, what justification is given for charging those higher fees on these sorts of funds or is there not? So my understanding, and I'm not an expert, and there are many experts who I'm sure will tweet me after they've listened to this podcast to tell me that I am wrong. But my understanding is that if you want anything unique or slightly different, you pay a bit more for it to be put together. It's bespoke. Um, so they have fewer people going for it. There's a, Another point is that there are maybe a smaller collection of companies you can actually use to formulate these funds because you can't just go and pick the best performing. You've got to be more selective. You've got to do more curation. So it's, it's you know, more work basically on the part of the person putting the ETF together. Um, there may be other reasons. And as I said, I'm sure somebody will tweet me. And when they do, I shall let uh, the good folks at 11FS know so they can broadcast a correction. <laughs> but as you said, they, you know, they have been transparent about their fee structure on Absolutely. the website. And that's great. <clears throat> they do generally seem it's a, like a sibling pair and they do seem quite cute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen their pictures. What are you saying? I thought you were a married woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, like... like I don't know if I can phrase that poorly, but they do. I randomly stumbled across, like, I think their YC Combinator pitch video on YouTube, and I would totally recommend looking it up because it's adorable. Um, but yeah, sibling sibling teams in fintech. I mean, there are a couple out there. You've got the Collisons and the Winklevoss twins. And you, would you guys found a fintech with your siblings, Amy? Absolutely not. <laughs> not an open hell when I found a company with my sister. She has a business, it's great. I'm an. You know, I'm my own boss. I work in, you know, consulting and strategy. My sister runs a body repair shop for cars. So I think that sounds like a great combination. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Maybe not for ESG. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, watch watch this space. Okay, um, on to our next story. So uh, this is from lots of places, TechCrunch, Altfire, The Times. Several fintechs post growing revenues despite global downturn. Fintech companies Ramp, Monzo and Atom Bank have all shared growing revenues and pushes towards profitability in the annual reports published this week and also according to Sarah Starling. Um, despite a cooling market, corporate spend management startup Ramp reports that it has more than doubled its revenue run rate since the start of the year. UK neobank Monzo saw revenue soar 90% in the year ending March 2022, helping to narrow its losses to £119 million from circa £130 million the previous year. 
And also in the UK, Durham's Atom Bank has moved a step closer to its first annual profit after three consecutive quarters in the black. Mark Mullen, Atom's chief executive, said it was on course to announce its first annual profit. However, US lending platform Upstart's second quarter results shared last week showed revenue growth of roughly 18%, which is a sharp deceleration from the quadruple-digit revenue growth the company delivered in Q1 2021. So lots of numbers there. Um, (laughs) Doug, which of these results is the most encouraging? Uh, I really enjoy hearing Atom Bank's success. Um, I find it quite interesting, you know, not being based in London. uh, I love hearing this diversification of just being spread out across the whole of the UK rather than just reverting to when you talk about the UK, it's always London. Um, and to, to hear such a great success story out of that and the way they've done it um, by offering different financial products to maybe some of the other um, fintech banks that you always hear about that always take the news or you know the flashy card. Um, I think it's, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's, that's my favourite one to hear. To that point as well, Atom are one of few that have actually tried to revolutionise mortgages, haven't they? And they've <laughs> and they've actually had some success there. So yeah, At- Atom's success is um, is promising. You gonna make it a clean sweep of Atom fanboys, Sarah? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think I mean I think Atom's done very well. I, I will say just as a, a caveat that they did very well up in the last year, and that still includes some C-bills loans. So there will be a question of how much of that they do get paid back. Um, I am sh- I'm sh- sure it will be fine, but um, like Starling, it would be unfair to comment on their success without commenting on the fact that they did have a government-provided advantage when it came to lending um, over the last sort of 18 months. And when you think about an annual report, like Monzo's goes February th- through February. So yes, they had a good run of it, but that was up to February of this year. So we're now in, you know, July, what's happened in between. Um, most companies, when they publish their annual reports, will tell you, and we're currently at X, unless it's really bad, in which case they will just remain silent. Um, but no, I think I think Atom's interesting. I think Ramp is interesting. I don't know them hugely. Um, but I think, what, from what I understand, their USP is helping businesses spend less. And again, to my earlier point, spending less right now would be really, really nice. across Wherever you are in the world, there are very few countries that have been unaffected by what's going on macroeconomically. I think that's probably helped them. Um, and then, of course, Brex, one of their um, peers or competitors, depending on which slice of the market you look at, has stopped serving the smallest end of the market um, recently. So I think Rampa said that they've had about 21% of their new customers have been people who've left, been cut off by Brex because Brex has said, we're not going to serve SMBs anymore. Um, so that's that's really helped them. And that's not to say they're not running a great business, but I think those two factors have probably helped it you know, stand out with particular revenue growth in the last six months. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what about Monzo? I think it's certainly interesting after the last couple of years to um, hear that change. Um, I, I don't know if this was hyperbolic uh, articles, but it really felt during the lockdown, it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And to see that change, um, it's pretty pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Amy, do you think, we're talking a lot about revenue here, but you know, do you think we're going to see an increased focus on profitability going forwards? Yeah, I think um, revenue being um, the focus right now and that being the first step, I think these fintech companies have proven is that actually growing revenue, getting close to profitability is possible 
And therefore, I think inevitably other fintechs, Revolut being an example of one that's actually increased its losses, there's inevitably going to be more of a spotlight on the rest. Yeah, I think the focus has definitely shifted from growth when money was cheap and all these investors were pouring money into these fintechs to, okay, uh, let's pull back and let's focus on actually being you know, profitable and, and sustaining, making the business we've currently got sustainable. I think that's behind, you know, obviously those huge numbers of layoffs we've seen kind of across the board. And it will be interesting to watch Revolut actually, to your point, Amy, given they've had huge amounts of money poured into them on the back of the huge growth they've achieved. Given the current economic situation, given what's crypto has happened to various cryptocurrencies, and that's where Revolut makes so much of its money, are they going to be called in by their investors to make more of a focus on profitability? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to say, but that's going to be a very interesting one to watch. I think. Yeah. Well, I, I think the word you use, Katie, um, was deceleration. Um, it's not necessarily that the industry is going through a rough patch when you look at it across the last couple of years, it's still really impressive. These numbers are amazing. Um, obviously, during lockdown, and people are so nervous about their finances and you can't access a bank, suddenly being able to access finance digitally and on your mobile, it's going to lead to huge returns and incredible numbers. So I think we really are just seeing a realignment and still quite positive, encouraging as well. I mean, Nigel... Verdon over at Rails wrote a slightly, well, I says con- contributed to a rather provocatively titled article, Fintech is Dead. Sarah, you're, you're giggling. Um, because I know that actually what he said within the article was Fintech is Dead as a term, like Fintech is now just finance is basically what he was saying. And actually what he said Fintech had been replaced by is the concept of embedded finance. Um, so Fintech is now just the modern financial services industry. Um, but he does like a good soundbite. Absolutely. And they, you know, they are rather invested in embedded finance so it yes, kind of makes yes, sense for him yes. to, to take that spin on it so um we touched on you know, atoms lending um obviously this focus on profitability you know, that has kind of been seen as like the default path to profitability um what are the sort of the advantages and disadvantages of, of going down that path you know we've seen starling go into lending i think we talked about creditas in brazil in the show last week they've also kind of focused on lending um what what, what advantages and disadvantages does that bring I mean, if you're going into a higher interest uh, environment, then there are obvious advantages that it brings in terms of increasing the revenue that you can um, you can bring in off a loan. But obviously, it increases the potential for defaults um, because people who were previously entirely able, <laughs> for example, an awful lot of fintech workers who were previously entirely able to pay back, you know, on their loans on time, are now going to struggle to do so because they've unfortunately lost their jobs. Um, I don't think lending is the answer. Um, I think Starling has done it well. I think Atom has done it well. Um, I am still rooting for a properly innovative credit card product in the United Kingdom to come out of one of these banks. I think I don't think buy now, pay later replaces credit cards. I think we still need a proper um, innovation there. And the innovation I've seen so far has been largely cosmetic, kind of interesting rewards programs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think... In terms of the question, is lending the answer to profitability? For the companies mentioned here, Starling, Atom, yes. Um, Is it the answer for companies coming to market now? Not necessarily, unless they deliver that really innovative credit card product that um, I think we're missing in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously obviously you talk about when you you loan, also you've got to get the the money back and that doesn't always 
go according to plan. So I think you know, one thing that we quite often skip over as an industry, you know, we think about fintech, but we don't tend to think about your know, debt collection and how debt collection works and how that fits with you know the the very positive consumer orientated brands that a lot of these fintechs have built. So um, yeah, Amy, what, what do you think? How does debt collection come into the picture? Yeah, I think as well as well as de- debt collection, but um, on the lending point, I think we fintechs need to be careful if they're going to use lending as their means to push to profitability because, yeah, Starling and Atom, there's been success there. But even now, Starling having to think about and diversify from its small business loans, looking to increase its mortgage lending, sort of balance out that risk. So it is a higher risk strategy. So although it may work for some, I think it's it's not for every fintech and there needs to be other options for them, so subscription-based revenue and prof- and making a profit through other means. I mean, it has, sorry to jump in, but it has worked for Monzo, just talking about annual reports. I mean, Monzo's Flex product has enabled them to grow their lending book. I think it's 147% in the last 12 months. And I would argue that Monzo has done it reasonably responsibly because their Flex product it does look like a buy now, pay later product, but it does require a credit check. And they are kind of limits on what you can actually spend. So that's, you know, kind of a reinvention of a line of credit. Um, so I think that's an interesting model as well to look at. Yeah, no, I think um, the thing I like particularly about the Monzo Flex offering is they've kind of actually made it really easy for you to kind of pay that back ahead of schedule. So it's, it's just a really intuitive, I think, interface for if you, if you have extra cash that comes in or you don't spend what you're expecting to, but you can really easily kind of get ahead of those payments, which um, I think is, is great to see. Cool. Well, um, sadly, we have to uh, move on now. So for this part of the show, uh, we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Amy, would you like to kick us off? So firstly, Instagram's new payments feature lets users buy products via DMs. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the company is launching a new payments in chat feature on Instagram. With this new feature, users can purchase products from small businesses and track orders via direct messages on Instagram in the United States. To use the new feature, users can start by sending a direct message to a qualified small business they're interested in buying from. In that same chat thread, they'll then be able to pay, track their order and ask the business any follow-up questions. The company says 1 billion people message a business across its family of apps each week, whether it's chatting with brands, browsing products or asking for support. So this feature actually uses MetaPay, i.e. a rebranding of Facebook Pay, which was launched or relaunched last month. Um, And then PayPal is the payment processor. So something I thought was quite cool about this was that you can track your order as well as pay for it. Um, Not sure quite how that would manifest itself, whether it's tracking through an actual conversation with the business or whether there's some sort of automated tracking there. But um, it'll be quite interesting to see what what that actually looks like and how that's executed. Brilliant. Um, Half a trillion dollars wiped from fintechs, according to the Financial Times. Almost half a trillion dollars has been wiped from the valuation of once high-flying fintech companies that took advantage of the boom in initial public offerings earlier in the pandemic. According to CB Insights data, more than 30 fintechs have listed in the US since the start of 2020 as investors flocked to companies 
benefiting from a shift towards digitisation during the pandemic. However, as the economy heads towards a potential recession, concerns about rising interest rates, lack of profits and untested business models have put them at the sharp end of this year's sell-off. Shares in recently listed fintechs have fallen an average of more than 50% since the start of the year, according to a Financial Times analysis. That compares with a 29% drop in the Nasdaq Composite. Their cumulative market capitalization has fallen $150 billion in 2022. And if each stock is measured from its all-time high, around $460 billion has been lost. Um, yeah, I suppose just in case you hadn't already noticed, it really is a bit of a roller coaster at the moment. Um, by these calculations, these are massive numbers and they sound scary. And we saw, as it says, you know, fintech valuations really did shift benefit in a beneficial way from the pandemic and that push towards digitization but you know, it feels like now they're kind of feeling the brunt of investor nervousness as that threat of recession grows and grows but you know, we talked about earlier on the show you know we're starting to see companies buck that trend in growth markets and we're seeing um you know companies posting positive results and, and investor narratives that are focusing on that revenue generation part of profitability so it's not all doom and gloom um, and I think we need to see how the rest of the year pans out before we make any major judgments you know streaming companies were taking a massive hit uh, as well but I've bounced back this week after Netflix lost fewer subscriptions than fear than Q2 so I think we just need to wait and see. Christie's is getting into venture capital with a new fund for tech startups making financial tools for the art market So Christie's is expanding further into the intersection of art and technology with a new investment fund for startups. The launch of the new division, called Christie's Ventures, is aimed at what it describes as emerging technology and fintech companies that are related to the art market. As an in-house investing firm, it will offer both financial support and guidance to its portfolio companies with the ultimate goal of finding better ways to sell fine art and luxury goods. The first company that Christie's Ventures will fund is Layer Zero Labs, which helps consumers transfer assets across different blockchains, giving Christie's customers, for instance, greater flexibility to move around their assets. Um, Firstly, of course, it's called Christie's Ventures. <laughs> like every um, fintech fund or fund of this of this type is given the venture's name. But um it, interesting because Christie's has long been quite forward-thinking in its adoption of new technologies. So it's one of the first auction houses to introduce electronic bidding, for example. But here, I think funding a company that enables the transfer of digital assets across blockchains, that makes sense considering that Christie's has played this key role um, in the NFT art boom um, and suggests that it's keen to keep pushing forward this innovation in, in digital art and sees a real opportunity there. You're going to be buying anything? Probably not NFTs, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. So, this was from Business Insider. A pop-up ice cream truck is selling eat-the-rich popsicles shaped like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, and people can't get enough of them. Um, an ice cream truck is selling popsicles in Los Angeles and New York that are shaped like tech billionaires. Called Eat the Rich Popsicles, the treats of a latest endeavour from Muschuf, a Brooklyn-based art collective. The popsicles are a play on the term Eat the Rich, a slogan that's become a rallying cry among Gen Z and millennials frustrated with wealth inequality. Each popsicle is an uncanny representation of one of the five big tech billionaires, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Alibaba's Jack Ma, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Microsoft's Bill Gates, or Tesla's Elon Musk. By 5pm on Monday in New York, all of the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos pop scores were sold out. Well, I'm gutted. I've missed out on this. Um, <laughs> is this a 
fun, ironic product or art with a deep, profound meaning? Sarah? Um, neither. Um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of think it's just a really good way for this art collective to make money. And I think it, um, if you want to buy a $10, what's that, £7.50 mm. an ice cream, um, that looks, I'll be honest, terrifying and slightly disgusting. Like, I can understand, I <laughs> caveat, um, or full, sorry, full disclosure, I don't eat ice cream, so I actually don't know. But if you were in Rome and you were eating, like, a beautifully handmade gelati on the steps of the Colosseum and it was three scoops in a cone and it was £7.50, I can understand that. But I, 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 I don't really get this, I'll be honest with you, particularly in this current heat. Surely they'd melt before you got a chance to actually get it in your mouth anyway. That was my main concern, yeah. When I saw the pictures, they do not look like robust they, ice creams. They look structurally unsound, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah. Um, which which of the five would you have picked, Doug? I mean, I saw the photos of Musk coming out of his uh, out of the sea, and it looked like <laughs> an ice cream slightly himself. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd probably have to go with with the Musk, just purely for how his war on uh, public transport in Vegas is just unbelievable. So yeah, Musk would probably. I think it calls the the slag um, the tagline <laughs> is. Uh, I said slogan and then went tagline. That's right. <laughs> we believe you. <laughs> um, it's Munch on Musk. So that's good. that gets my vote. Right, okay. Um, Amy, which famous figures would you like to see in popsicle slash ice cream? I find it, I struggle to say the word popsicle, seriously. It's ice cream or ice lolly, lollipop. I guess. Lollipop here in the UK. Who, who would you like to see? A series of fintech founders would be great. Maybe female fintech founders. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got some pictures in in front of us of the popsicles and they are very disturbing so I can't believe people actually bought them particularly not for $10 a piece I want to know what flavour they were as well like were they different flavours I'm struggling because they, they right they're a, a lolly for British listeners not for Australian listeners because um, that means something completely different there but kind of looks like moulded ice cream but with Smarties stuck on for the eyes I, you're going to have to go and Google them because I I can't work out what flavour that might even be trying to be. I bet they're really boring. I bet they're just vanilla. Yeah. It's just, I mean, what is, what is your favourite ice cream flavour, Doug? Oh, pistachio. That's a very sophisticated yeah. choice. You've pulled it back from a slag yeah. comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, what, what are you going to go for? We've just had a massive heat wave in the... Have we not talked about the weather so far? We've had like the world's... No, not the world's, but the UK's hottest day this week. We even so. talked about the environment and we managed to dodge it. Wow. <laughs> Did you, did you crack out some ice creams this week, Amy? I'm more of a lolly than an ice cream kind of person, um, so a simple Calippo is probably my favourite. Okay. Um, Sarah, we know that you didn't have an ice cream. How did you survive the heat wave? Well, I, I, don't, I don't need ice cream per se. I do like a Calippo. Um, I will also say that I'm quite fond of a blackcurrant sorbet. Like, you know, the really retro stuff you can get in supermarkets, like in the, in the frozen aisle. Well, I don't know if there's ever seen an actual blackcurrant, but I'm quite fond of that. So we need to lobby Mischief to turn you into a popsicle. It's a blackcurrant sorbet flavour. That's what we need to push for, people. <laughs> I have no thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. It's been great to hang out. So where can people find out a bit more about you, Amy? Um, best place to find out more about me is LinkedIn, Amy Gavin. Brilliant. Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Doug? Uh, LinkedIn to Doug McKenzie uh, and Twitter at uh, Dougie Fintech. 
Nice. And as for me, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter at K8Moody. Um, thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11 Thank you very much. Goodbye.